Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture, and theology. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyons. And today we're, is part two of responding to objections to our whiteness episode. We're back. Okay, to split it in two to make sure we dealt with it honestly. Okay, so the next one, number five, he asked the question, he asked me this question, what should minorities do instead? If you don't agree with what he had said before, what do you think the steps that minorities need to take to move forward? What do you think are the steps? I, <laughs> I object to the question. <laughs> the question assumes that it's up to minorities to make the change, which goes back to playing the victim, taking responsibility. So let's take it back to 1850 or 1950. Same problem, different laws. What should the black person do at that time? They shouldn't do anything. They didn't have the right to vote. The people in power should be doing. So the question is, what do you think the steps that minorities need to take to move forward? I don't know. I'm not a minority. Who's got the power and who's benefiting from the power? What should they do? If minorities are victims, then there should be someone in power who will right the wrong, who will give them justice that they deserve. We've lived in a country for so long that the and I think I can say this is 100% fact. The only racial progress we've ever made is as a result of minorities pushing for people in power to change. It has never happened because the people in power decided to change. We like to take cre- credit for the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement was a small minority making so much trouble that the majority said, fine, we'll give you what you want if you'll be quiet. That's it. Um, even slavery. The abolitionists were a minority. They made it, they made a lot of noise and until people finally did something about it. And even Lincoln, if you want to call him the great emancipator, he didn't take a poll on slavery. He just made the change because it was politically expedient. Uh, but Frederick Douglass was the one traveling around to Europe telling people how bad slavery was, which is part of the reason Lincoln created emancipation because it ensured that England wouldn't join the, the South. Well, how did England know about slavery? Lincoln didn't go over there and tell them how bad it was. Frederick Douglass did. So minorities, the fact is, minorities need to do what they've always been doing, which is making good trouble, as John Lewis said, so that changes will happen. But that's not the right answer. That's a necessary answer. And it's only because whiteness is so embedded into people that they won't do anything until someone goes out in the streets and protests. And again, it puts the impetus on the victim, not on the perpetrator. Those with power, with great power, comes great responsibility. <laughs> Spider-Man knew it. Took, he had to learn the hard way, but he learned. And we need to learn the same way, is that minorities ideally shouldn't have to do a thing. They should sit and wait while we, who have the power, the privilege, whether that's us individually or the people we vote for, Fix the problems that we created 200 years ago or 400 years ago. And I know what people are thinking. I didn't do it. I'm not in power. I'm an individual. As someone said, white people are as unique as snowflakes, but not as fragile. (laughs) We pride ourselves on our individuality, which is a unique Western idea. And it's false. It's unbiblical. It's corrosive. It gets you the benefits of being in a group without having to take responsibility for the group. And as long as we hold on to hyper-individuality, 
there will be no progress. So really, I'm only speaking to the people right now who can admit they're part of something bigger. That's not one of our listeners. Come back next week. We'll probably talk about some obscure Baptist history figure. <laughs> so yeah. just thinking out loud, doesn't that argument sound paternalistic? Oh, my argument. Yes. Couldn't that, couldn't your argument mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We need to take care of minorities. Right. Uh, yeah, it could actually. You could use it to say they can't do anything on their own. We have to do it for them. Yeah, there's a lot, there's been a lot of racists in the past, like Robert Lee, for example, who thought that they were the ones, the black people needed them to fix the problems. Yeah, I think the difference being paternalism assumes the good, the good motives and nature and lack of culpability in the paternal figure. So, uh, so a father taking care of children is a, is sort of a benevolent figure. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's helping these children out of the goodness of his heart, out of a sense of, of love and, and duty. And if it wasn't for him, they would, they would die. Mm-hmm. And they're lucky to have him. And look at the benefit of, of having this father figure. Okay. That's paternalism. A better way to look at this is someone's been the victim of a crime. You don't go to the judge and say, out of the goodness of your heart, because you're such a good person, help me. It's like you tell the judge, not only is it your job to help me, you're actually part of the problem. So in, in the Bible example, the judge she goes to is evil. Not a paternal figure, an evil judge who she bothers so much that he finally does what he should have done in the beginning. So he's actually part of the systemic problem. So when he fixes the problem that he helped create, no one gives him a cookie. No one gives him a pat on the back. So paternalism assumes that the, the, the powers who are helping are benevolent, um, the white man's burden. They didn't have to do it, but out of the goodness of their heart, they did. What I'm talking about is, when you steal somebody, it's more like Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus got saved, he said of his own free will, because he realized he was wrong, he repented and he said, I will pay back everyone I stole from. I don't know, fourfold or sevenfold, whatever it was. He's just fixing this thing, problems he caused. And paternalism is about being a good person. Justice is about giving people what they deserve. Paternalism also assumes a weakness or a inability in those you are right. being paternalistic towards. Right. Yeah, it's assuming that they can't do it on their own. As opposed to when you've... So in one sense, yeah, if, you with, if you've kept them out of any position of power, they can't do anything because they don't have a position of power. If you were to put them in that position of power, they would do as well or better than anyone else. Uh, you look at Reconstruction... Right after the Civil War, the Northern Army occupies the South, which many Southerners are still mad about. Uh, and so they let black people vote and hold office. And because these states had so many former slaves in them, large state congresses, state houses of representatives were filled with black people. And it was like a moment where like finally they can govern themselves like democracy requires. And they did a great job until the Northern Army left and the KKK stepped in 
which is where the KKK came from, and forced them all out of office. So it's not paternalism to say, uh, don't terrorize people out of office. We're going to kill you if you do that, which is what the government should have done. Uh, yeah, so there's nothing inherent. So a ch- paternal, yeah, a paternal figure is opposed to a child, and a child can't take care of themselves. What we're yeah. saying is that when you hold a gun to somebody's head to keep them from getting benefits, taking the gun away does not make you a better person. Okay, point number six, or a sixth objection, White, which I summarize and say whites were blessed because they followed the Bible. People of color suffer because they neglect it. And this is what he wrote. I believe white people have been blessed the way they have because there's a long history of the Bible being an important part of their lives. This is uh, unbiblical and anti-gospel because under the new covenant, your obedience doesn't earn you blessings. The old covenant, God says, if you obey the covenant, the law of Moses, you will be blessed with land, with children, with riches, with safety, with crops. In the new covenant, you don't have to obey at all to get blessings. We are Ephesians chapter one or two. It says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. How? In Christ Jesus, not in obedience. So you can make the Bible the most important part of your life and live a terribly difficult life. In fact, you could be thrown in prison for years like Paul was. You could be beheaded, be crucified upside down like Peter was, exiled to the Isle of Patmos like John was. The idea that if you obey God, you'll be blessed is a prosperity gospel. Joel Olstein preaches a prosperity gospel. And this brother here is, is arguing for a prosperity gospel, a racial prosperity gospel. That because white people were more obedient to God, that's why they're in charge. He kind of admits that white people are on top, <laughs> that they've, they, they're more, uh, financially secure. So he's admitting there's a racial disparity, which you can't argue. The data is there. But he's saying it's because they've kept the Bible a part of their life. Okay, so the first problem with that is the false teaching that obedience equals blessing. When we know from the New Testament that faith equals spiritual blessings. One day, physical blessings in heaven or in the new earth. So... Uh, to, just just to add some pushback to that, um, so Book of Proverbs has wisdom on how you should live, right? That generally speaking, when followed, would be better than right. not. So couldn't you say that because the Bible was a part of their lives, even if they weren't blessed because they were good, it taught them the the right way to live that would, on the average, work out for them, possibly. But let me read the next sentence where he eliminates that argument. He says, when we apply God's word into our lives, we also receive God's blessing. Right. So my pushback wasn't necessarily in his direct, in his statements, but the general idea that oh, right. because the Bible has been a quote unquote important part of white people's yeah. lives, even if it's not necessarily God's blessing, it's just general good sense that they've been yeah. able to follow. Yes, you will make out better in this life, but I think when you call it God's blessing, it's God's favor. Blessing equals favor, right? God doesn't bless people unless, when you use that language of blessing, you're referring to God's favor on people, giving them something in return for something. 
There's no promise that God will give you physical blessing in return for faithfulness. There's the opposite. In fact, if you are faithful to God, what will happen? You will suffer. That's the promise. So to say that you receive blessings for faithfulness is the opposite of what the New Testament says. Right. Uh, and it's a, it's a fact that Proverbs is in the Old Testament, too. Like, that's got to factor into something on how we do it. Uh, and also, Proverbs is not, uh, as a different subject, Proverbs is not law. Proverbs is wisdom. Right. Can't be yeah, interpreted so I was, the same. I was just trying to be charitable to try to remove the... Right. It's called imprecise language and just say, you know, culturally right. speaking, if you follow the teachings of Proverbs, even if even if we remove the language of it being a specific right. blessing, just if you follow Proverbs, even if you're not a Christian, won't right. typically lead towards prosperity. Yeah, it's uh, that's more like a life hack almost. Um, but that wisdom is not the same as following the Bible. It's part of the Bible. But it's also in other wisdom teachings. So he continues on and he says, when we depart from it, the Bible, as much of the culture in our minority communities have done, then comes the consequences as well. And it was for hundreds of years that our minority communities departed from it. So he's saying white people are more faithful to God than black people. Right? That's a fair assessment of what he said. White people applied God's word into our lives and received God's blessing. Minority communities departed from it and as a result were punished. That's false. For one, has the minority community departed from God's word? That's a big assumption. That's a broad brush, as people like to say. What minority communities are we referring to? The black community? which has a higher rate of spirituality, of faith in God, of church attendance, of Bible reading, of every indicator of spirituality that we have, is higher in the black community than in the white community. So first of all, it's false that minority cultures have departed. He's saying that because two two reasons. One, they're struggling physically, financially, which is, he would say, in, indicative of their neglect. And two, they don't emphasize the truths that he and his community emphasizes. So he's saying, well, they don't, they don't emphasize whatever verse that I think is important. Therefore, they're not as spiritual as I am. But I'd add, I want to know, how many black churches has he been to? How many yeah, black people was, has he talked to in general? That's what I was going to say. Like, reading the actual words of the black leaders I was taught about. Right has been eye-opening in what they actually believe and not what I was taught that they believe. Yeah, exactly. Like, we hear secondhand. We hear one quote from Martin Luther King Jr. about not being judged by the color of her skin, but we haven't read one book by him. How many sermons have we listened to? We don't know what we're talking about when we talk about minority communities being unfaithful. We need to be a little bit more humble and recognize that we don't really know what's going on if you're white and grew up in a white culture, you don't know what's going on in minority communities. I know you've got a couple of black people in your church and you had some black friends growing up, but there are 40 million black people in America and you knew five of them. You don't know the black community. How about we listen to people in the black community? What do they have to say? Let's go talk to some pastors. Let's go to some black churches and listen to them. Let's read some of the works that are held in esteem by black people 
And it, I've found that the idea that minority communities are not as spiritual is just false. It's ignorant and it's false. Which is a secondary thing from the fact that you don't get blessings for faithfulness. That's prosperity gospel. You get salvation through by grace through faith, and then you get all the blessings immediately. And you're going to experience those blessings as you go. But if you are the most faithful Christian in the world, you could live your life as a poverty-stricken, oppressed uh, minority. And that's the Bible teaching. This is the one that bothered me the most out of his objections, because a lot of these can be argued about historical, whether Robert E. Lee was a good person or not, whether American history. But this is actually scriptural. And it's a way to, it's, it's, white, it's white supremacy. Like When people think white supremacy, they think KKK. This is white supremacy. He's literally saying that white people are better than minorities. They're better Christians. The white faith is superior to the black faith as evidenced by their physical positioning. That's white supremacy. You can say, well, I think blacks and whites are equal. Not in their faith, not in their spirituality. So that's a, it's a form of white supremacy. And it's people like this are uninformed, willfully uninformed because the, the information is of not far away, but they are uninformed of what it's like in a black church. Yeah, white conservatives and those who who espouse whiteness as superior don't know black communities. They don't. They know it. They know black people individually, of course, and they may even have some black people in their church and have relationships with black people, but they don't know the black church, the community, the spiritual life of the black community. In fact, most of them would say that it's wrong that there's a black church. But there's a black community at all. They would say it's, it's a form of segregation, which is also uninformed, both historically and practically. Uh, the reason we don't have a lot of black people in our churches is because white churches are not safe for black people. They're, they are marginalized. And this guy's church, does he get up and he, does he say that white people have a better faith than black people? What black person is going to sit through that? That, that white, the white faith, the white tradition is more faithful to scripture than the black tradition. That's, that's white supremacy. Uh, and it will continue to keep our churches predominantly white. And just to reaffirm, we receive God's blessings because we have faith in Jesus Christ, who earned all of those blessings through his obedience, not ours. And you can never be faithful enough to earn God's blessings. Ever. Never. Uh, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, not of faithfulness, not of following God's word, not of applying God's word, um, lest any man should boast, lest any white man should boast. It's all grace. Okay, last one. Seventh objection, he says, I choose my lens. Uh, this is what he, I'm summarizing his statement. I choose my lens, not blame systems or people around me, which makes the problem worse. So he writes, I'm not sure it's so much the fact of what system I'm in as much as in what perspective or lens I choose to live my life looking through. I believe that when we blame others for the condition we are in, that it only causes the problem to continue or grow bigger rather than dealing with it and overcoming it. Okay, save that second. He goes, it's not so much the fact, the fact of which system I'm in as much as it is what perspective or lens I choose to live my life looking through. Uh, that's a naive way of looking at culture. If you lived 500 years ago in medieval England, would you 
think it was manly or unmanly to have men weep openly in public a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago. I don't know if you actually know the answer to this. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. So a thousand years ago, Europe, manly or unmanly to weep openly. I don't know. I don't know what the culture is. Right. It was common for knights to sort of express their emotions, the depth of their emotions. Okay. If it were to happen now, what would we feel of some man who was openly weeping in public? Unmanly. We'd be like, that's unmanly. So what, what changed? The system, the culture we lived in taught us how to do things. We didn't think of that. Did you think of that before this moment? Did you choose to believe no. that? No, of course not. Um, do you think democracy is a good thing? Yeah. Why? Because did you, did you decide that? Yeah, I, oh, you? <laughs> I independently came to that conclusion without any external input. Right. It's funny how most Americans believe that democracy is the best thing. But if you go 500 years ago, most people thought it wasn't the best thing. I think it was uh, Winston Churchill who's got the best quote on democracy. Yeah. He said, democracy is, the wor- is a terrible form of government. It just happens to be better than the other ones we've tried. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but the fact that we're so committed to democracy, we never chose democracy. None of us came from Cuba and left behind socialism. I mean, I guess some of our listeners may have migrated from Soviet Russia. But most of us just have always believed it. And so it's naive to say that you choose everything that you believe. You can choose it, but for the most part, what you believe was given to you by your your parents, uh, the school you went to, the church you went to, the TV you watched, the books you read, the friends you had, without you realizing it. It was just a culture you grew up in. It was normal. You never thought about it. It was was the water the fish swam in. And to neglect that, the Bible talks about renouncing the things of the world. Well, how can you renounce them if you don't even know they exist? And that's Satan. Satan is a deceiver. That's his greatest power is deception. And if he can make you think that you are making all the choices and doing nothing by habit, then he can slip stuff by us, which is what happens. And it's why Slave. history is so important, right? Because you can see what persists across cultures and what is culturally conditioned. Right. Yeah, we can look at history and say, how did everyone in the South support slavery? Because they were raised with it. There was a slave the moment they were born, and every moment of their life it was just there. And they never thought about it. They weren't better or worse than us. They were the same as us. They were just in a corrupt culture or a corrupt moment in history. And most of them just couldn't have the, didn't have the moral clarity to see past it and weren't willing to admit it. So what's to say that we're not in the same place? You do choose some of the things you believe, but most of it is the system you're in. Now you can choose a new system. Um, the Bible talks about a way, following the way. In other words, a consistent, coherent way of living, a system, if you will. And it shapes, it shapes the way you think. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Leaving behind one system and sanctification is slowly changing the way you view the world by adopting a new way of thinking, a new system of thinking. And you don't even know where it's going to take you. So you don't simply, you're not a blank slate. 
where you have all these options in front of you, socialism, capitalism, racism, all, and you just pick one randomly. You already have one. And most of us are going to spend most of our lives getting rid of all the bad stuff. And then when we get to heaven, we're saved. God will fix the rest of it. Uh, and he said, the last thing he said, I believe that when we blame others for the condition we're in, that only causes the problem to continue or grow bigger rather than dealing with it and overcoming it. Again, that's assuming the problem is our fault. Going back to the Jim Crow era black people need to stop blaming the government? No. Who was it that put the laws in place? Does the, does the black man who's been a victim of unjust incarceration, should he take responsibility for that? No. He needs to blame the judge who gave him the, the longer sentence. It goes back to the idea that we're all individuals living our own individual lives and everything we have is a result of a choice we made. And that is unbiblical, it's false, it's dangerous, and it allows us to ignore everyone around us. As the first murderer said, am I my brother's keeper? Part of this argument, I think, is assuming that if you see systems and outside influence as the cause for issues, it could lead to a fatalism. Right. Yes. So if you can't control anything, what's the point of even trying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in the context of racial issues, I'm talking to mostly white people or white adjacent people who it's more about facing what they've done, not what they can't do. When you talk to minorities, black people, for one, they don't need us to talk to them. (laughs) Plenty of people. (laughs) They're they're more informed on the topic than we are. Yeah. what they've said, people like Martin Luther King and, and others, James Baldwin, is that black people have power. Black people are powerful. They're powerful people. And we know that because they're created in the image of God. Anyone yeah. created in the image of God has power, yeah, and I think which means the, you have the ability to accomplish something. I think the witness of how they've reacted throughout history shows that it did not lead them to fatalism. Telling it, black people that addressing racial issues is going to make them apathetic is very condescending and ignorant of history. Uh, when the white community tried to destroy the black family through family separations for hundreds of years, what happened? Black people were like, no thanks, we're going to do everything we can in our power, which is considerable, to have a black family. And so the black family exists today as a miracle because they refuse to give in to white oppression. Okay, so there's the power. Uh, the black church exists because black people had the Holy Spirit, for one, and the power to continue when their churches were burned down, when they were lynched in front of their churches. Um, you know, black churches getting burned down all the time. No one talks about it. But a white church gets burned down. Suddenly it's Christianity is being oppressed. So the black church exists as a miracle because they didn't have the financial support. They didn't have the moral support. They're labeled as liberal, as emotional, as... All of these sorts of things, and yet they still exist. Black people have been, white people have been trying to erase black people from the day America started, 1600s, until whatever point you want to say. Let's just say 1970. Excuse all of our listeners. That's a long time to try to erase a group of people. Did it work? Not according to Barack Obama, who was the president, (laughs) right? (laughs) So we need to stop pretending that black people need white people's help to exist and to accomplish what we're talking about is 
taking responsibility for what we can take responsibility for and speaking out against systems that benefit one group of people over another group of people uh, who are equal. And that's what the Bible does. That's what God does through the Old Testament. He always speaks up for the widows, the childless, the fatherless. He's not out there trying to support rich people. Show me verses where God's like, we need to take up the calls of the rich. Take up the calls of the powerful, the kings, the judges. He never talks about them because he understands that they've got power. And he's not saying to a widow, even remember the widow who tossed her two mites in. He was he was vindicating her agency by saying, look what she's doing with what she has. She is more spiritual than all these other Pharisees. Because she made a choice that was more powerful, but he doesn't say, oh, but that's fine that she's poor. Who cares? Right? So he's, you can fight a system and still give people power. In fact, the whole point of fighting a system is it's taking power away from people. And that's, Jesus said, I am here to release people from captivity, to free those in prison, to free people from poverty, spiritually and physically. Otherwise, what's the whole point of the new heavens and the new earth? All right, what's the point of praying for blessing, praying for help from God if he's not going to relieve our problems? Anyway, I do thank this brother for being honest with what he believed because hiding what you believe is never the right answer. I'm sure we say things that are wrong all the time on this podcast. Well, and I mean, you do more talking than I do, so. You usually are correcting me, you. too. <laughs> you usually are correcting me, so that's true. It works out. The world... Democrats and Republicans have made racism the one thing that no one can admit they have. Well, and not only that, but these aren't unique statements in this email. Right. So it's not, I mean, it's only one email that we got, but it's not the first time I've heard any of these arguments. No, these are common. And if we don't, if we don't expose what we believe to people who can help us, then we'll continue to believe things that may or may not be right. Uh, And if, and and the flip side if I see this person who wrote this email and I shun him for saying things I disagree with, well, that's not Christian either. Um, the Bible says that all sins are sins. And the answer, the Bible gives the answer to sin as repentance, not hiding or shunning or canceling. Cancel culture is sinful, just to state that. No one should be canceled. Only God cancels people. And Jesus doesn't cancel anybody. Neither should we. No, what needs to happen is the ideas need to come out. We need to admit whether they're right or wrong. If they're wrong, we change them. If we have sin in our hearts, possibly in our views of race, we just admit that. Yeah, and it gets back to culture, right? We can we say things all the time that everybody around us agrees with. Right. So the only way to to be sure that they hold up to the actual actual critique is to say them to people outside our circle or people that disagree right. with us. So who could confront us and say, let me be the first person who's told you you're wrong. <laughs> right. Which no one likes that. They always like to be affirmed. But diversity, that's what diversity is for. It's to have people who don't think like us confront us when we're wrong. And so hopefully that's what we've done. And we get plenty of pushback. Maybe we'll listen to some of it. But it does make us think more carefully. If you could only hear all the edited bits of this podcast, <laughs> we censor ourselves. No, we're, we're live wondering. to tape. This is exactly, we've <laughs> right. edited nothing out. <laughs> we make sure that we only get the stuff that we're willing to die, defend and die by. 
all the questionable stuff goes on the cutting floor like I said I met this guy and if I met him again I treat him the same way which is hopefully nicely thank you for listening if you have any questions you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on twitter at historyandhope you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or any podcast app of your choice 